Jeremiah chapter 29, a very powerful chapter, wonderful chapter, blessed chapter, beautiful chapter in a lot of ways. But before we begin, i got to share this. I have to get this off of my, you know, just off my chest and ask this question to you all. Well, maybe I'm not going to ask the question. I'm just going to tell you, this world is crazy. This world is just crazy. And the things that people focus upon is so important. You know, and I, and I thought, you know, what is wrong with this world? Well, of course we know what it is. They don't know Christ. They don't know Jesus. We spent uh, lunchtime yesterday at a place where they were showing... Normally they show soccer or some sport. All day, all day they showed this Michael Jackson service, you know, or service for him in, in L.A. And then everybody come up and they sing and they cry and they sing and they cry and they do all kinds of stuff. And that, that was, you know, bothersome enough, you know, because I just felt like they were making him out to be more than he, you know. I mean, some heads of state don't get that kind of attention. It was on, I don't know how many channels. Well, then, it was at the very end, though, of the service, of that service, where they began to do a song, and, and, and they began to show all these religious symbols. All these religious symbols. Now, folks, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have watched this for anything, but I'm kind of glad the Lord showed me, or allowed me to see this, because... It seemed like, you know, there's the cross and there's the star of David and there's, you know, the crescent moon of the, you know, the Koran or the uh, Islam and, and then a whole bunch of other religious symbols. It was like, you know, you know we are the world. And then they, they would put that up there. I could, we couldn't hear it, which is thank the Lord. Thank you. We didn't have to hear the whole thing, but, but you could see this. And, and I just kept thinking, you know, that this is man's attempt. And religion, and trying to combine everything that, you know, when you think about it, nothing meshes. When you try to combine it all, it's, it's irrational, it's wrong. But we are the world, and we are this, and we are that, and let's unite, and let's be one, and let's be happy, and let's... And folks, we know that that's not real. What is real is Jesus Christ dying on a cross 2,000 years ago for our sins... Because if he doesn't, we have no salvation. That's real. What's even more real is when we say yes to Jesus and our lives are changed and we truly see what God wants to do in us. That's real. And so, uh, you know, that whole hodgepodge of, of, of celebratory mishmash is... You know, I'm not trying to downplay the, you know, the loss or anything like that. It's just that it's fed to the whole world. And we know it doesn't mix. None of those symbols mix together, do they? None of them. But the one that mixes the least with all of them is the cross. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. That's the bottom line. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. So I just, I had to share that with you all because I, I know that probably some of you saw it on TV. You probably kept changing channels. And, ah! It was on every news channel, even regular channels they were doing it and covering it. I even heard that one of our own TV stations sent a crew all the way over there to, to see it. I have a lot to say, but I'm not going to say everything. The important thing is this. This world has gone mad. It's looking for hope, but it's not looking for it in any place where you can find it. And some of that hope, and a lot of that hope, all of that hope, 
is what we're going to see tonight. And we're going to see where it comes from. We're going to see that the only hope that matters is the hope that God gives us through Jesus Christ. So here we are in Jeremiah chapter 29. In verses 1 and 2 it says, Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened after Jeconiah the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. Shall we pray? Father, give us light from your word this evening, Lord. Give us wisdom and understanding through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Let there be wisdom, Lord, not only in our, in our minds, but in our hearts as well. Grant it to us, Lord, through your Spirit. May we see, Lord God, How wonderful and beautiful your holiness is. How great is your salvation. How great is the future and the hope that you have designed for us. If we will just seek you and find you. When we search for you with all of our hearts. Lord, this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you all hear me okay? If I get real soft, can you hear me? I feel soft-spoken tonight. A theme continues in this chapter. One that began in chapter 26 and carries through chapters 27 and 28. Having to do with the controversy surrounding the false prophets. And while the false prophets being dealt with in these three previous chapters were those among the people in Judah and Jerusalem. The false prophets in this chapter, chapter 29, were among the 3,000 plus who were exiled into Babylonian captivity there around 597 B.C. As a matter of fact, uh, there's an exact number given to us in Jeremiah 52, verse 28. There it says, uh, these are the people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive. In the seventh year, 3,023 Jews. So, uh, that number is significant in in Jeremiah 52. We'll talk about that when we get there, uh, whenever we get there. But actually, as as some believe, this number only referred to the male Jews that were counted. And when you added in the families and all, the estimated number would be around 10,000 people. Now we're going to hear some other figures in a minute and it's not to confuse you uh, because you'll have to understand that there were many deportations but the ones that are mentioned for us have to do with Jeconiah, his mother, and, and the others. But the letters we have recorded here in this chapter of Jeremiah was written to these people who were in exile. They were already, in other words, they were already in Babylon. They were already in Babylon. And when you read the ninth chapter of Daniel, and, and this is important for you to do as homework, but when you read the ninth chapter of Daniel, you realize that Daniel knew of this letter that we're reading tonight in Jeremiah 29 by the prayers that he lifted up to the Lord on, the, on behalf of the people. Take, for example, Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, where it says, In the first year of, of, of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. As many, many years later, uh, and Daniel, not a young man anymore. And it says, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet. So again, Daniel has been uh, affected by the things that Jeremiah himself not only had prophesied, but had written And it says that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So that came through his prophecy as well as the letter that we see written here 
in verses 5 and 6 of Daniel 9, it says, We have sinned and committed iniquity. And here is his part of his prayer. And of course it reflects the very reason why Judah was taken into captivity. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. Jump down to verse 10 and it says, We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. So, as they had received the Word of God, they had rejected the Word of God, they were no longer following the Word of God, therefore, they were judged. And they were taken into captivity. Now please understand that when we, are, as Christians, begin to get away from the Lord, and we begin to refuse to uh, stand upon His Word, and we reject, as it were, the Word of God, and we begin that process of backsliding, what are we, in fact, doing and what are we saying? Well, we're saying that, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're rejecting Your Word. We're, we're going by what we feel we want to do for us and not do what God says. And, what happens to us? We fall into a captivity. What captivity is that? We're not put into chains and sent into some other country. But we are captive now by what? By the very sin that Paul said we shouldn't be captive of. We should have dominion over sin now. Why? Because we have the Spirit of God. So what happens when we set aside those things? We better check our hearts. Well, we're given a timeline, and it is a clear timeline in verse 2 for the sending of this letter by Jeremiah, and it provides background from 2 Kings 24 concerning Jeconiah's deportation. But let me, let me read to you here verse 2, because here it tells us that this happened after Jeconiah the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths, had departed from Jerusalem. Now, you'll notice it's a separate uh, timeline, if you will, or I should say a number uh, of, of those who, who go. Uh, turn to Second Kings 24, verse 12. It says, And Je- Jehoiakim, who is Jeconiah, king of Judah, his mother, his servants, his princes, and his officers went out to the king of Babylon. And the king of Babylon, in the eighth year of his reign, took him prisoner. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king's house. And he cut in pieces all the articles of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. Also he carried into captivity all Jerusalem, So, those that were in Jerusalem at the time were taken into captivity. All the captains, all the mighty men of valor. Ten thousand captives and all the craftsmen and smiths, like ironsmiths and and so on. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried Jehoiakim captive to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officers, and the mighty of the land. He carried into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the valiant men, seven thousand and... And craftsmen and smiths, 1,000, all who were strong and fit for war, these the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. Now, what is the importance of this historical background? Why are we mentioning all of this? And again, don't, don't worry about the numbers. There, there were various deportations. So each deportation had its own number. But what is important about this historical background? Why am I bringing it up? Well, it is significant that Nebuchadnezzar, in keeping with methods that they actually learned from the Assyrians. Now, the Assyrians were the ones that they overran, and, uh, and they defeated, and therefore Babylon had become the, the great power of the, uh, of the ancient world. But uh, they learned some things from the Assyrians. And that is that they deported anyone that, that they thought might cause a problem with the Babylonian Empire in the future. So this is why they deported Jeconiah or Jehoiakim. Now, this method of eliminating leaders and leaving the peasant population to pay taxes to the king just reduced the likelihood of rebellion. So, Nebuchadnezzar was doing everything to keep rebellion from happening. So he takes the leaders and their their families, he takes all of the strong people, they're they're in captivity, he leaves the poorest in the land, and, and, and the poor, of course, have nothing, but they still have to pay taxes. And if you remember then, also Zedekiah is the vassal king uh, who is is there in the area of of Jerusalem and Judah, but uh, he's powerless, you see. So, you know, 
Nebuchadnezzar has pretty much everything under control. And then, of course, as with any conquered people who are exiled and forced to march uh, hundreds of miles, many of the Jews did not survive the grueling trip. So here again, that shows you know the 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 the, the brutal uh, and cruel ways of, of the Babylonians in handling things. But it was, in fact, to keep everything and everybody in their place. Now, knowing the survivors' desperate need for encouragement, now there, there's, uh, there's a tremendous need for encouragement right here by the people. And, 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 and they need it for themselves. This is the reason why Jeremiah sends them this letter. And by the way, we're going to find out as we go through this uh, chapter this week and next week that uh, the letter is actually uh, a number of letters. It's all compiled and sent at one time, but there's a letter for certain people, and uh, you will see that as we go. But first of all, here in verses 3 and 4 of of Jeremiah 29, it says, The letter was sent by the hand of Elazar the son of Shaphan, and uh, Jemariah the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice the emphasis. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. And it is sent by people who are actually uh, connected to the priests or the priesthood. And, uh, and so it's a letter from the Lord. It was a message from the Lord God of Israel. The exiles needed to recognize that he had sent them to Babylon. That's why it says, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. The exiles needed to recognize that God had sent them to Babylon and they were not there primarily because of Nebuchadnezzar. Please understand this. A lot of times the struggles that we are going through, we want to we want to just all of a sudden just throw everything, all the blame on the devil. We want to blame the enemy all the time and and he should be blamed in a lot of cases. But there are times when the Lord allows certain things to happen. And he's saying, "I caused this to happen so that you will turn back to me." I caused these things so I could wake you up to show you the need you have for me and you'll call back to me and I will answer. But be careful about putting, you know, throwing all the, all the blame just you know, toward the enemy. I'm not trying to protect the enemy, by the way. God's going to take care of him anyway. That's pretty clear in the scriptures. The enemy's got a sealed deal with God. I mean, he's, he's wiped out. At this point, you know, we know the enemy's goose is cooked. You understand? It's already, it's already made clear in the Scriptures. God has seen the beginning from the end. God says the enemy's already defeated. When was he defeated? When Jesus died on the cross. And when he rose again from the dead and defeated sin and death forever. So that those who believe in Jesus Christ will not have to face the second death. We may die, but if we die, we will be with Him, with Christ. So they had to recognize, God says, I have caused this. You sinned, you didn't repent, you decided to go your own way, I'm taking you all to Babylon. I just used Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar will get his, just like the devil will get his, for the cruelty, or, you know, know, at least the Babylonians will will get what what, what comes to them for the way that they treated the, the children of Judah. But all of this is a reminder. This reminder was to assure them of God's sovereign control over the affairs of their lives. God was still in control. And so when you read in verse 5 and and all the way down to verse 9, it says, build houses. He says to them, listen. Listen to what he tells them. Build houses and dwell in them. He says, when you get to Babylon, build houses. You're going to be there a while. 
You see, that's the whole idea is to, to let them know they're going to be there a while because they're hearing prophets even along the way saying, you know what, we're going to go to Babylon, but we're only going to be here about two years. Then we'll be back. We've already covered this in the last couple of chapters. God is trying to make it very clear to them, you're not going to come back right away. My prophet Jeremiah was right. You should have listened to him. So he says, build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. And, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, so that they may bear sons and daughters. Let life go on among you. You're still my people. And that you may be increased there, not diminished. That's very, that's very important here. We'll get to, to that thought in a moment. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. And pray to the Lord for it. Pray to, those, uh, pray to the Lord for those that you now live, live amongst. For in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause uh, uh, to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. So now they're getting a message straight from the Lord and and tell them, you're going to be in Babylon a good long while. So take heed. Now, we're all familiar with the approach that is taken in presenting news and information that may or may not be accepted or appreciated. In other words, you all have heard this. What What do you want to hear first, the good news or the bad news, right? You've all heard that. You've probably said it. What do you want to hear, the good news or do you want to hear the bad news first? Well, in this case, there is the apparent presentation of bad news. Get yourself settled in for the long haul. That's what God is saying. That's the bad news. You're going to be there 70 years, but get settled in for the long haul. You're going to be in Babylon for a good, good, long while. So settle down. Build your houses. Eat the produce from your planted gardens. And get your families going and increase the population. Get your children going. Increase. Now, isn't that the good news here? Look at the good news. They're going into captivity, but they're going to be allowed to have houses. They're going to be allowed to plant their own food and, and eat from, the, from, from their own produce. They can have children. They can have their children have their children, and, 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 and they marry, and, and, and they begin to grow. I mean, this is good news. Now, understand this. Remember that they had lost everything. When the siege of the Babylonians upon Jerusalem and Judea had come, they lost everything that they had. They lost everything but their lives and whatever possessions they had with them, they carried with them to Babylon. They probably didn't carry very much with them. So they had lost their freedoms and their means of making a living. They were separated from friends and family. And at that point, the future seemed hopeless. Doesn't the future seem hopeless if all of a sudden everything in your life changes? And you're having to deal with having less and dealing with less, if not nothing. And either you resign to it and die... Or you cry out to God and say, what do we do, Lord? And God says, go. I told you you were going to go. I told you you would go into into captivity. But I've also told you that I'd bring you back. You see, that's still part of the good news here. In the death of exile, the Lord has allowed the seeds of new life. In the death of exile... The Lord has now allowed the seeds of new life. The Lord was restoring their nation for the distant future. Who was going to go back to Israel? Who was going to go back to Judah? Who was going to go back to Jerusalem? For many of those people who were already older, they would die in Babylon. So he said, grow your families. Have your children and let your children marry and let them have children. That's the future of Israel. I'm building you back up. And I've given you a place where you could do it. But if you had stayed, if you stayed in the land, you would, you would die. We saw that already in, in the previous text. 
So they needed to let God have His way with them. Folks, doesn't that sound like the, the, the way it should be with us? That we need to let God have His way with us, no matter what we're going through, whether through good or through bad, or through struggles or through trials, or even through the temptations and the failures with temptations in this life. And we can't blame God for when we fail. Everyone is tempted, but you know what? We're not tempted because God put us there. But if we fall into the temptation, there's still hope. Why? Because God said if you sin, and you confess your sin, He's faithful to forgive you of your sin. But you've got to bring it to Him. See, and, and so we need to let God have His way with us. In other words, it's very simple. Get into God's Word, understand what He says about how we are to live our lives, to live them right, to live them holy, to live them just, to live them righteous, and to do that, and godly, and to do that for the sake of His glory and honor. But we're going to find out that even in the midst of, 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 of trials and affliction, that is when the Lord truly strengthens His people. In the midst of trials and afflictions, the Lord strengthens His people. I want you to go all the way back to Exodus chapter 1. Now remember what we were saying, that God is telling the people going to Babylon, listen, that are already in Babylon, go ahead and build your houses and, and, and farm your lands and, and, and then let you, you know, uh, have more children. I mean, that, those are signs of life, isn't it? Even in the midst of captivity, even in the midst of struggle, trial, affliction. In Exodus chapter 1, there's some, there's some very similar circumstances here. In verses 8 to 12, what has been happening? Well, when you get into Exodus chapter 1, Joseph has already died. Joseph had been, of course... Uh, raised up in, in, in the, the very leadership of, of Egypt for the sake of, of, uh, uh, of Jacob and his sons who were, who were there. And, and, uh, but the, the, the Pharaoh that, that was serving at the time of Joseph passed away. A new Pharaoh came in, didn't like the, didn't like the Israelites. So he placed them in, into greater bondage. We're told here in verse 8, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. They just had a lot of children, man. They just kept, you know, having children. And, and he says, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest, lest they multiply. It happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. Therefore... They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for the Pharaoh's supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. And notice verse 12, but the more they afflicted them, the more they afflicted the Israelites, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. And so you see, I mean, in the very midst of affliction, they continued to live as God's people. God had not forsaken them. But God was taking them through these particular testings to show them and to show Egypt the God of Israel. And so then the, the children of Judah coming into a new land. What were they supposed to do? Do you notice that God doesn't instruct them to go and, and, and make weapons and try to fight against their adversaries? No. He actually tells them to make peace with Babylon. He already told them. We, we've already studied it. He says, you're going to go to Babylon. But you need to go because if you don't go, you're going to die. If you want to live, you've got to go to Babylon. So the children of Israel, Israel or uh, Judah, I should say, were to seek peace. They were to seek peace in the land of Babylon. You'll notice again that they weren't encouraged to gather their weapons or build their weapons or make their weapons, kill every leader in Babylon that they could find, devastate the economy, overthrow the government. They were never told anything like that. And it certainly wouldn't do them any good to, you know, then uh, on the other end to hang their harps and sit around the willows and weep continually over their situation. As a matter of fact, this was a psalm showing us the picture of the sadness of their hearts when they arrive in Babylon. And it's not Judah. It's not Jerusalem. Psalm, 30, uh, Psalm 137, verses 1 through 4. It says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. 
We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. In other words, there's no music here anymore, folks, because we're far from where we used to rejoice in the Lord. For there, those who carried us away captive asked us of a song, or asked of us a song, and those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So, they weren't to overthrow the government, they weren't to try. They weren't to really just sit around and just weep over the whole situation. And while we may find it very difficult, there are times when we are to accept the hand of God on us. There are times when we have to accept the hand of God on us. We may not understand why for the moment, or for the time, or for the trial. We may not understand. We may ask the question why. But uh, you'll probably not hear an answer. For many times, the answer isn't at the moment. The answer comes when God brings the rejoicing, when God brings the end of the trial, and the rejoicing begins. And you look back and you realize why God allowed certain things to happen. And so accepting the hand of God on us and letting Him have His way with us. It's surrendering ourselves to God in all things. It is humbling ourselves before the mighty hand of God. Does He not work all things together for good, as, as Paul says to us in Romans 8? Even when the enemy means things for evil, isn't it God who means things for good? Doesn't God always do things for good? Please consider Joseph because of that very thought that I just brought up. Back in Genesis chapter 50, after Joseph had been abandoned by his brothers, they were going to kill him. Instead, they sold him into slavery through the, to the Israelites who eventually took him to Egypt. But then God, in, in God's providence raises Joseph up through the leadership of Egypt. The brothers go back thinking, well, he's sold into slavery, eventually he'll probably be dead. Washing their hands of their own brother. Isn't that an interesting picture of Jesus and the Jews? He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. But as... as uh, a famine is hitting the land and, and Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to see if they could get some kind of help. The brothers come back into the presence of their brother Joseph. Again, God's hand doing all of this work. I pick up in verse 18 of Genesis 50. It says his brothers also went and fell down before his face and they said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for, I, for am I in the place of God? In other words, don't bow to me, I'm not God. But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. You see, sometimes the evil that's meant against us, or at least whoever has the desire to do things against us, they may have meant it for evil, but God has allowed it for what? For good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. So I am where I am, even though you had planned something totally different years ago. I am where I am for the sake of saving you and many others. Isn't that just the hand of God? And I think that this is what we sometimes miss in, 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 in seeing what God does in, in, in our circumstances, in our day-to-day -day situations. This is why we need to be so caught up in, 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 a, in a personal, devoted relationship and, and, and fellowship with Jesus Christ. This is why we, we, we ought not to just consider that, that if we, we come to church, maybe we'll have a little spirituality here. And when we leave, we, we, we leave it here. 
Folks, I, I don't think you've noticed, but, but there, there are no lockers where you can leave your spirituality here and then go and do whatever you want. And then when you come, you go, you know, you guys check in, punch a clock, open up, put, and put on your spirituality. You don't do that. You are who you are the moment you walk in and go out. But who are you? Are you a child of God or not? Are you a believer in Jesus Christ or not? Are you a follower of Christ and are you a doer of the things of God or not? You see. And so, when we are prayed up, as it were, people like to use that phrase, we've got to be prayed up. Well, if we're prayed up and, and, and read up in the Scriptures, if we've gotten our discernment from the Holy Spirit, we're filled with the Spirit, folks... When we face certain trials, we can say, it's either this or that or that person, this person doing things against me, or it's just the Lord allowing it for me to learn something here. Everything happens for the next thing. Everything happens for the next event. Everything that happens, happens for the next step. We learn from every step we take. Or at least we should. And so the exiles were now to be peacemakers and not troublemakers in Babylon. And they were to pray sincerely for their enemies. That was verse 7. Pray for your enemies. That sounds like something that uh, we've learned from Jesus and the Apostle Paul. Matthew 5 verses 43 through 48. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You've heard that it was said, You should love your neighbor and hate hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? If you only love those who love you, There's nothing to that. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect. In other words, you shall be complete. Just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Which means, God so loved the world. God didn't just love some segment of the world. He loved the world. That He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Be ye perfect. Be complete. As your Father in Heaven is perfect and complete. You see how closely tied in we need to be to our Father through Jesus Christ? Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-4 through 4, teaches us very similar Leave the same thing. Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men. Not some men. Not the ones you like. But for, for all men. For kings and all who are in authority. Who was their king at that time? There's some weird Caesar, wasn't it? They were to pray for him. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We are to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. For theirs is the kingdom of God. In Titus chapter 3. Paul would teach us in verses 1-3, through remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. Be subject to the rulers and authorities. Is this not what God is saying to the children of Judah going into Babylon? Be subject to your rulers. To obey, to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. To be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. We were that way, but we're not to be that way anymore. Why? Because we are to have the mind of Christ. Because we are to have the life of Christ. Because we have the Spirit of God in us. We're to be people of God's peace. 
And so returning to Jeremiah's letter, now we now move from the recipients who have no hope, because these were the ones that had gone over there and they were no longer singing, they were no longer praising, they just didn't see any reason to do it. But they thought, well, maybe in two years we'll be gone. And the Lord says, no, you'll be there 70. But you're going to live and you're going to prosper in your families. And you're going to have what you need by what you grow. Build your house and do all these things. So he says to, from the recipients with no hope to those with false hopes. Now he writes a portion of the letter to those with false hopes. Because in verses 8 and 9 it says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. Now, the Lord warned the people against listening to the false prophets who were preaching a deceptive message. Proclaiming that the Lord would soon return the exiles to their homeland, perhaps within two years, which was the same false message they were preaching back in, Judah, uh, back in Judah in chapter 27. And they were not only saying that they were going to go back in a couple of years, but they were going to bring all of the gold and all of the treasury back to Jerusalem. That wasn't going to happen. So it was a message of false peace, security, and prosperity. Naturally, it was a message that would have been well received by an enslaved, oppressed people who were suffering so dreadfully. Oh, we have, we have hope. But it was false. Oh, we have security, but it was a false security. So by listening to the false prophets, they were, de- they were defeating themselves. And their spirits would have been defeated. So the message had to come quickly to them. Listen, you're not going to be there two years only and then you come home. You're going to be here a long time. So in the meantime, get ready. Settle in and live. I'm not going to leave you. You're going to have what you need. Listen to what Jesus says about false prophets in Matthew 7. He says, beware, in verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. And I tell you this, that that is, the, that is God saying to us in the same chapter where he says that we're not to judge, judge not lest you be judged, but it is in the standard of what you're judging and the measure by which you judge. But when you get down to verses 15 through 20, God says this is the way you judge. Jesus says this is how you judge. You judge them by their fruit. You don't judge the person, you judge the fruit. And that's what God gives us to judge. And that, that, can be, that can be happening today, you know, even not only religiously or, or spiritually, but even politically, governmentally, whatever. Good, tree, good trees bear good fruit. Bad tree bears bad fruits. Judge them by their fruit. Then you shall know. Be discerning. The people were not to lose heart. For the Lord knew their plight and the Lord knew their sufferings. And, and His ultimate pers- uh, purpose for them was, was to pour out His richest blessings upon them. That really is what God wants to do. And so from those with no hope to those with false hope, now to those with true hope, He issues forth some wonderful promises. Look at the promises we see here in verses 10-14. through 14. For thus saith the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon. Well, there's the bad news, isn't it? Gotta remember, the bad news gotta come first. What's the bad news? You're not gonna be there two years, you're gonna be here 70 years. After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you. That's a tremendous promise in itself. You're living far from the place where you worship me, but you weren't, you know, you were coming into my temple and you weren't worshiping me, so you were far from me then. But now you go through this completed 70 years, I will come and visit you. Isn't that interesting? 
God says, I'll visit you where you are. In your struggle, in your trial, in your suffering, in your affliction. I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. Just as God caused them to go into captivity, now He'll go in 70 years and take them back and cause them to go back into the land. And then we hear that one verse that is for many a a, a life verse. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. If you underline anything today, underline that in your Bible. When you search for me with all your heart, not half of your heart or 75% of your heart or even 95% of your heart, with all of your heart. And I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from the captivity, from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. Which is, by the way, not only talking about the fact that they had been scattered out to Assyria, and then what later would become Babylon, and any other places that they, had, they may have been taken. But this is looking all the way down into history, all the way down to where we are today, because what's happening today in Israel... People are coming back into the land from where? From every corner of the earth. From every corner of the earth, the Jews are going back into the land. That is fulfilled prophecy, folks. And it is still happening today. It is saying to you, my word is true. I am God and there is no other. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. True hope can only be based on the revealed Word of God. True hope can only be based on the revealed Word of God, not on the dreamy messages of false self-appointed prophets. And while the truth was that 70 years would have to be completed by them, not one day more or one day less, which some would still consider being the bad news, the good news was that the Lord promised to restore the nation and bring His people back into the promised land. God promised it, and by the way, God is doing it. So now we see why it was important for them to adjust to their new surroundings and environment, which is what the Jews have done historically down through the ages. Every place the Jews have been, the first thing they do is they go in, you know, it doesn't matter what, what nation they go into or what situation, what environment, everywhere they go, they set up their synagogue, they set up their place of worship, they set up their place of reading the scriptures and all. They have a community that's tight uh, amongst themselves, but nonetheless they become involved in the community, but they stay separate for the most part, or at least they should, but they still become involved. And, uh, of course, we know that when certain people turn against them uh, through some demonic uh, oppression of whatever sort, as we saw back in the 30s and 40s and the Holocaust and all, uh, and, and that happened many times. It wasn't just that one, one time, but in just smaller situations. What we see is then again what they were doing. Historically, they have just gone into new surroundings and environments. They become part of the community, yet they still try to remain separate religiously. And so with a de- they do so with a desire that is deep in their hearts to return home. There is always that desire to return home. At Passover, they say, next year, where? In Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem, it's a saying. Next year in Jerusalem, we'll be home. And while most of the parents would die in Babylon, as I said earlier, they could place their hope in the children simply because the Lord had commanded them to settle down, to build their houses and raise their families and and increase as a people. The children would restore and rebuild the nation of Israel. And then comes one of the most beautiful and most loved verses in the Scriptures. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. And while this has become a life verse for many Christians, 
myself included. I, I, I love this verse. It has spoken to my heart many in my heart many times, in many situations, and in many cases, in many ways. God has said to me, I know the thoughts I think toward you. My thoughts are toward you of peace, not of evil. It is to give you a future and a hope. And while it's become a life verse for many, it is indeed a life verse for the children of Judah. And Jerusalem, because God's plan was not to harm them, but rather to bring them to peace and prosperity. That is why he told them, when you go to Babylon, you know, go to Babylon and you'll live. Even with whatever you have to endure there, you will live if you stay in Jerusalem, as if you're going to fight against Babylon, you're going to die. God always had their best interests in mind. He didn't want to harm them. He wanted them to come to, to, to peace and, and to prosperity. It was, it was God's plan that offered them a bright hope and a bright future. And I want you to think of those two words for just a moment. Where, where does hope and where does future fit in your lives? Where does hope and where does future fit in your lives? Do you have hope for tomorrow? If you know Jesus Christ, you have hope for tomorrow. You have hope for tomorrow. What about future? What about a future with God? You may not know where you're going to be tomorrow, but you know what God already knows. Well, don't you rest then in, in what no, the Lord knows about your future? Isn't it better to trust in the Lord for tomorrow? And it takes again that, that uh, communion with God. That communion with Jesus Christ. So it was God's plan to offer them a bright future and a hope. Something that the world, the flesh, and the devil could never do. The world cannot offer you hope in the future. The flesh cannot offer you a hope in a future. What future do we have in our flesh? We do our best to try to take care of it. Or sometimes we do our best to try to, without thinking, we we may be destroying ourselves by what we put into the body. But eventually, even just growing old sometimes puts us, you know, where our future is at risk here. So the world can't give us a hope in the future. The, the, the flesh can't give us a hope in the future. And certainly the devil has no desire to give us a hope in the future that is, any, that is of any value. He just wants to destroy us. So if there were any people at this time that had no thoughts of peace, it had to be the children of Judah. But God's thoughts for them were for peace. Completeness. Now, see, understand the word shalom. This is the word shalom. It's not only a greeting in Israel. You not only say shalom when you go into a place and say shalom when you leave. It is a word that means peace, of course, but it means much more. The peace that God wants us to have, the peace that God wanted His people to have, was a peace of completeness, of wholeness, of fullness, and soundness. God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and of a sound mind. That's completeness. That's why he says, as, as we read uh, earlier in, in, in the words of, of Jesus, Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. What is that perfectness? It is the completeness. It is being at total peace with God because you are complete and whole and full and sound. And that's what he wanted for his children. Israel, children of Judah, he wanted it for all of Israel and he wants it for us. And isn't it a beautiful thought that the Lord actually thinks of us? Because He says, my thoughts that I think towards you. I mean, it's a beautiful thought that the Lord actually thinks of us, and even more personally, thinks of you and me individually. Have you ever just thought about that? How God thinks of you individually. Some people might think, well, I don't think he thinks much about me because I'm not 
much of a, uh, you know, I, I don't do anything except sin. <laughs> We're all sinners, aren't we? Now, He doesn't want us to keep sinning, but He wants us to come to Him so that we can get the strength to live right. can't live right if we don't come to Jesus. We can try, but the flesh, again, works against us. The world works against us, and the devil works against us. So His thoughts toward us are of peace and not of evil. Isaiah 55, verses 7-9 through 9 says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and He will have mercy on him, and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. And then He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. But what are the thoughts of God? Psalm 139, verses 17 and 18. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. This is David having that personal relationship with God. And he says, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more, than, uh, more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If I should count all the thoughts, it would be more than every grain of sand that exists. And so the understanding of God thinking about you and having good thoughts for you of peace and completeness and wholeness and soundness and fullness, what should that do to our hearts? What need is there then to be afraid or discouraged? Why do we spend so much time in fear and in discouragement if God says, my thoughts towards you are of peace? And not of evil. Why, Christian, do we spend time in fear? Why are we spending so much time discouraged? And the Bible says Jesus has already done the work that, we, that was necessary for our salvation. And that we now, today, can live in the benefits of the shed blood of Christ. What need is there to be afraid or discouraged knowing that these are the plans of a loving God, plans that eventually lead to hope and peace? And yet in every situation, God's people have the responsibility to seek the Lord, to pray to Him, to ask Him that He fulfill His wonderful promises. Remember, the Word of God and prayer always go together. The Word of God and prayer. A prayer is our responsibility. And that's just why in verse 12 it says, Then you will call upon Me and go and pray to Me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek Me and find Me when you search for Me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. I'll tell you right now, some of you here today are living in some captivity that you've placed yourself in because of sin, and God is saying, I want to get you out of that. And I want you to quit being discouraged and quit being fearful and just seek me with all your heart. And I'll be found by you. And I will hear your prayer. What is it that God wants with us? What is it that God wants from us? The simple and profound answer is that He wants our whole heart. He wants our whole heart. I can tell you today, we all struggle with this, but listen, I can tell you today, we're not living, we're not giving God our whole heart. You might, you might, you might disagree with me, that's fine. If you're living your whole heart, life for, for the Lord in every little detail of your life, praise the Lord for that. I got to learn something from you. But I know that, uh, I know that, A.W. Tozer, when he said this, he meant it. He said, Christians don't lie. They just uh, tell, uh, yeah, Christians don't lie. They just sing them in church. Do you understand what he's saying? Christians don't lie. They just sing lies in church. You know when we do that? 
when we sing, I surrender all, but we don't. I surrender all, all to Him, my blessed Savior. Do we really surrender all? Because there are some people who say, I surrender 10%. And that's it, bottom line. That's what I surrender. Some might boast and say, I surrender 11%. But that's all you surrender. But is it the whole heart? Is it the whole heart? God doesn't want us to come half-heartedly to Him, but how many times do we come half-heartedly? We come into church, we sit down, you know, the music going on, and we're, we're kind of participating, but in our minds there's so many other things going on. And I can tell you this, there's a lot of things going on in our lives. Today there's so many pressures from all sides. We understand that. But when you come in here, you come into the place where God, who made us and created us, and is almighty and all-powerful, he says, will you trust me? Will you trust me and let me give you peace and a hope and a future? Just seek me with all your heart. He doesn't want us to come to Him with a divided heart, half our heart seeking Him, the other half the pleasures of this world. I can only think of the heart of Moses of whom it is said in Hebrews 11 verses 24 and 27, or 24 through 27, by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. The King James says uh, that he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. His whole heart was turned to God. Going back even further to Enoch, it is said of this man in Genesis 5.24, and Enoch walked with God. You see, a man whose heart is full toward God, a man who's, who is wholehearted toward God, he is walking with God like Enoch walked with God. And Noah, Genesis 6.9, uh, in the genealogy of Noah, Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. You know, we need to be walking with the Lord. It isn't just a matter of saying, I know about God. It is knowing God and having that relationship with Him. Then there's Joseph in Genesis 39, 2 and 4. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. All because he walked with God and God was with him. Can we say, can these things be said of us? God is with him. He walks with God. His heart is toward God in all things. Her heart is toward God in all things. Can God say that of us? Can anyone say that of us? As for David, he himself writes this in Psalm 138, verse 1. I will praise you with my whole heart. Notice David doesn't deal with half things. He says, with my whole heart, Lord. Before the gods I will sing praises to you. And the great thing about David is that even though he was a sinner, and we've, we had to deal with some of his greater sins, David never bowed his knee to another god. He never bowed his knee to an idol. Those who find the Lord in this manner will be renewed and refreshed, returned and redone. God instructs us to make the most of our circumstances, no matter how bad they might be. Whatever hardship or misfortune we confront, we are to stand strong for the Lord and bear witness to the strength that He places within us. God will always provide for His people. He will always give us the strength to conquer whatever confronts us. Even when we make mistakes and bring bad circumstances upon ourselves, if we truly turn to God in repentance and renewed commitment, He will deliver us from the crushing weight of the suffering. That is the God who says to us, the thoughts that I think of you, the thoughts that I think of you, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. I close with these 
words of encouragement to you. In Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 3, But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. That's the Old Testament. God is saying, listen, no matter what storm or flood you're going through, I'll be with you. I'll get you through. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10, Paul says, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations that he was seeing because he had been caught up into the third heaven. He says, A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly will I rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches, in needs and persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And lastly, Paul says in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. In other words, I know how to have nothing and I know how to have everything. Everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see the context of that? Everybody likes that. I can do all things through Christ. But you know what? I can even go through trials. I can even go through sufferings and afflictions. I can go through tragedies and temptations and failures in those temptations. I can go through all these things through Christ who strengthens me to get me through them. Go through tragedy and death, whatever it affects or afflicts my life. I can do all things through Christ. And there's, there's always reason why Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom, the Prince of our completeness, our soundness, our wholeness, our fulfillment in our fullness. There's reasons why it says that we're to be perfect as our Father in Heaven is perfect. What is perfection? It is peace. It is the peace of God in our lives. And so, as I said earlier, you know, if we're living in a, in a way right now that we're captive to the world, the flesh of the devil, and, and we've done so because we've just fallen ourselves away from the things of God, God is saying, listen, my thoughts... The thoughts that I think of you are of peace and not of evil. To give you a future. To give you a hope. Because the longer you stay in sin or the longer that you stay in captivity to these things, the less hope you have. God says, I want you to have a future. And I want you to have a hope. Let's pray.